He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host. Joined here by the rest of the Munson's. I want to give them a wide berth. What is called a born loser. A real Munson. <laughs> and talk a little bit about what's going on in their worlds. Case, you're up first this week. Actually, not too much on my end. But uh, I did want to give a shout out to uh, some of our international fans. On three different occasions, we've been in the top 50 or film review podcast in Brazil, which is pretty kick-ass. <laughs> and I told one of my friends that, and she said, hey, there are a lot worse places to be big than Brazil. That's true. And then a couple of days later, I was alerted that we charted at number 15 for film reviews in Greece. Mm. Oh. You know, I do have a little bit of a concern about James, and, and I don't normally check this, but I've been checking the transfer portal a lot. Looking for James, maybe trying to get onto a different podcast because I know he's been reaching out a lot and doing some other shows, and <laughs> I'm just nervous he's going to he's going to try to transfer out of here. Are you are you thinking this this whole wedding excuse for why he's not here is a it's all a smokescreen potentially? Hey man, I mean, how many times is that guy going to get married? I mean, he is out auditioning for other podcasts right now. I'm, I'm almost certain. So settle down, Larry King. Like relax over there. <laughs> they say third time is a charm. <laughs> Rigby living life ready to talk some Chris Rock I've always found him to be not only one of the funniest stand-ups out there but one of the funniest uh, actors so uh, this should be a really fun episode Warren you know just hanging out dad stuff as uh, we alluded to in our discussion earlier and lots of yard work uh, Craig if we want to have a little discussion I've currently killed five moles yes in our yard Back so at it's, it. Yeah, it's been brutal. Didn't we have this same discussion <laughs> last year and somebody talked about drowning them in a pool? Yes, we did. Okay. We, we were asking Warren about his tactics for taking out the moles in his backyard. Like, are you flooding them? What are you doing to, to alleviate God, this yeah, whole yeah. infestation? Gotcha. Yeah, no, no pool. But they suck. They, all they do is destroy your grass and spend a lot of money on a yard that looks good. And then they come and destroy it. Yep. All they're doing is eating all the bugs that are going to infest us for that 17-year brood X cicadas. <laughs> no, no fucking clue. In my world, I'm happy to announce our next guest. We're down James today. He, Like we mentioned, he is getting married this weekend. And, you know, seems like a busy time to be joining a podcast. So we'll manage without him. And it's helpful because we have a great guest joining us. We've got Aubrey McKay. Aubrey lives in Lakeland, Florida, home of the Detroit Tigers Spring Training Facility, where he teaches high school history. So join in the, the ranks of Dan Craig. we got another high school teacher here joining us. Um, he also writes about movies and TV with his wife on their blog, The Post Credit Scene. Welcome, Aubrey. What's going on, guys? Welcome, Thanks welcome. for having me. Yeah. Welcome, buddy. You guys do good stuff, man. I love this pod. This is I love being able to just go through actors' careers and talk about all the stuff that they do. So your guys' pod was perfect for me. Awesome. Hey, man. Awesome, Let's, man. You see that? Let's make lemonade. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so birthdays, April 22nd. Warren, what do we got? First off, we got Amber Heard. 
Pineapple Express, Drive Angry, The Joneses, and Never Back Down, a Munson favorite. <laughs> How old is Amber Heard? Man. She's been in the game for a long time, I feel like. Yeah. 38, Warren. 36? Give me 34. Oh, now I feel weird because I was going to say 35. Do it. I mean, it's a tight window for you if you go there, for you and Case. I'm going to go there because if I'm wrong, I won't be embarrassed. I won't be that bad. Well, you went there and she is 35. Oh, oh, shit. I also didn't say it's because I knew that she was 35. He, he played it cool. He played it cool. <laughs> Thread the needle. Nice job. <laughs> it's fine the first time. It gets fishy if you do it a second and third time. Well, everyone lower your expectations. There's no chance I'm right again. Next up, we got Jack Nicholson, Chinatown, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, The Departed, Batman, and well, let's just go with like anger management. Man, that's a high bar for him if anger management's the worst one. Anger management's still like a decent movie. Yes, it is. Holy moly. He's my favorite actor ever. So if we ever do him, he's getting 100 on my Munson meter. So I'll be very disappointed. This might, be the, close, this might be the closest we get to covering him. So I'll be disappointed if I don't win this. I'm going to go 82, Warren. I'm giving Rigby a tight window, 83. Hmm. Do it. Do it. Uh, a hundred and <laughs> no. Give me, uh, give me eighty. Eighty. Uh, Eighty-four. Oh. So Hickman jumped Rigby on that. Oh, you uh, ass! My dick move paid <laughs> off. Yes. Hey, Case missed his opportunity to go eighty-four on top of mine. I he did teed it up. So yeah, I was too worried about the joke. Last but not least, we got Jeffrey Dean Morgan, who's in No Country for Old Men. And oh wait, sorry, that was uh, the Javier other guy. Who, yeah, Javier Bardem. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to make a Bardem joke, so that worked out perfectly. The Watchmen, Walking Dead, and Jonah Hex. He was just on Hot Ones a week ago, too. Fun facts. Fifty-three. It was fifty-eight. Oh, that's literally what I was going to guess. I'll go fifty-six. 51 55 so i think rigby got that one with 53 yeah yeah, no one no one threw out the dick move so good day for birthdays and that's all all right so five actors we threw onto the wheel we're still a little sour with the wheel from a couple episodes ago but it redeemed itself a few times in a row so we're happy with it in this case those actors were Parker Posey, James Kahn, who was kind of the podcast favorite after the last episode. I know James was a little let down. It wasn't James Kahn, mostly because of the name. Uh, Alicia Silverstone, Dan Aykroyd, who also seemed to be an online favorite of folks and uh, with a last name that I apparently don't know how to spell. So that's fun. That first Y it just eludes me. Um, but the wheel landed on our boy Chris Rock, who has just about 80 acting credits on his resume, a lot of producing credits. A lot of writing, quite a few directing credits, a lot of soundtrack, and a lot of stand-up comedy. So a very diverse performer that we're going to talk about tonight. Normally, James would be here and take us through the trivia portion, but when James isn't here, Rigby is our stand-in trivia czar, and let's see what he's got. Pressure's on. Big shoes to fill. James is really good at this. So what we usually do is we do two truths and a lie. Two of the facts are going to be real facts about this rock, while one of them is going to be not about Chris Rock, but rather somebody from the Fast and the Furious franchise. So it is our job to try to figure out which one's the lie. First one is, when he was 18 years old, he worked alongside his father as a newspaper delivery assistant for the New York Daily News. Hmm. The second one is, a loud argument with a bank teller led him to be discovered by a talent agent and led him to his first movie role. 
And the third one is he was recently diagnosed with nonverbal learning disability or NVLD for short, which is characterized by poor visual, spatial, and organizational skills, difficulty recognizing nonverbal cues, and poor motor performance. Wow. Oh, wow. These are good, Rigby. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Sorry, James. You could be getting replaced. <laughs> hope, hope you like doing top performances, James, because you just got switched. I think I know this one. The lie is number one, and that is actually a fact about Kevin Hart, who was featured in Fast and Furious Hobbs and Shaw as Federal Air Marshal Dinkley. (laughs) What what a name, Dinkley. (laughs) He is hilarious in that role, too. I absolutely love him in that. (laughs) Craig, it's a good guess. You're close, but I think it's actually fact two. And that's actually a different person on the Hobbs and Shaw set. That was David Lovelock, who does the props on the Hobbs and Shaw. <laughs> First time he's ever been mentioned in a podcast. Lovelock met the right person on set, and he's had a successful career in props since. He's, he's looking to go to Whose Line Is It Anyway next. We'll see. There are 38,000 people in the world currently on Fast and Furious Wikipedia, and four of them are on this, on this podcast right now. <laughs> because I think it's fact number two as well, but that's it's actually Roman Reigns, who plays Matteo Hobbs, which is The Rock's brother. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think it's the second fact, too, but I think it's Tyrese because he's always yelling, just in general. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) He's always always unsure and yelling. The aggressively average Tyrese. We love it. That's great. The first one is actually true. Chris Rock, when he was 18 years old, by that point, he had dropped out of high school and he worked alongside his father, Julius, as a newspaper delivery boy for the New York Daily News. The New York Daily News wrote an article about it a few years ago about how he how he was connected with them because he wrote a column for them, which is kind of cool. So basically, the guy who delivered the paper was 30 years later, he was writing op-eds for him, which is kind of cool. So fact number three is also true. Recently, he was diagnosed with nonverbal learning disability. He knew that he had some social ineptitude. So he got tested. A lot of one friend suggested that he get tested for Asperger's syndrome. And so he underwent hours of testing. And while he wasn't diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, he was diagnosed with this NVLD, which I had never heard of before. But apparently it's a common thing, but it's not really well known. Basically, like I said, the condition is similar to Asperger's, but it's basically you have trouble with nonverbal communication, difficulty recognizing cues and poor organizational skills. So that's interesting. I didn't know that about our friend Chris Rock. And number two is the lie. A loud argument with a bank teller led them to be discovered by a talent agent and led them to their first movie role. That is actually Charlize Theron. Whoa. When Charlize Theron was 19 years old, she got into a loud (laughs) argument with a bank teller at an LA bank and standing behind her was a talent agent named John Crosby who said, I think we can work together. So he handed her a business card and this is great. He was her first talent agent. He he hooked her up with some movie roles. And then when she got so big, she eventually fired him and moved on to another agent. So <laughs> <laughs> those uh, movie agents and talent managers, it's a, it's a doggy dog world out there. So that was an interesting way to be discovered. Um, she got in a fight and that led her to getting her first movie role. So you would anticipate most people in there would be like flabbergasted and he's just she turns around he's just like wonderful performance do you need an agent <laughs> K- 
Case, tell us a little bit about Rock's snapshot in box office history. And based on the text you send, it sounds like it's not going to compare well. I have to say I was very surprised at how poorly he compares to a lot of the other people on our list. Now, granted, most of the people we're looking at on our list are, are pretty well established. So it's not like a bunch of nobodies. But it was really shocking to me. The highlight, I will say, is that you know he's been in some major projects and, and some major movies. And he actually ranks 12th of our 34 performers based on average film budgets. So he's obviously getting picked up and, and, and put into some major movies. In over 30 movies that I'm tracking of his, only six of them lost money. Huh. That's a pretty good thing, considering, again, he's in the top half of our podcast of, of film budget. This is where it turns a little bit dark for Mr. Rock. <laughs> he ranks number 29 in star meter out of 34 number 31 and 29 in critic and fan ranking and then number 21 and 24 in two box office metrics that i use and it ranks him 33rd out of 34 oh wow on our list and i was shocked by that i think that the trend that develops when you're looking at rock's box office snapshot is that you know, he isn't a major blockbuster draw for movies. He's phenomenal in ensemble casts. When it's Chris Rock as the lead in, in a movie, the box office performance just isn't there. When you cast him, though, in one of those ensemble roles, you're probably not going to lose money. I think he's incredibly respectable in terms of what he does in Hollywood and, and in movies. But in compared to a lot of the other people we're looking at, he doesn't he doesn't measure up super well. That's really surprising. 33rd out of 34 in terms of overall metrics. Yeah. You know what Rock needs? He needs he needs that Munson IMDb bump. That's where we're going to get him with this episode. All right. So early life of Chris Rock. He had a tough upbringing. Uh, so, you know, born and raised in Brooklyn. He was actually bused to white Brooklyn schools growing up. And he was bullied so much in high school that he actually dropped out in 10th grade. He ended up earning his GED while he was doing that. He was working a lot of fast food jobs, namely he talked a lot about Red Lobster. His goal was to be a truck driver at one point. He even mentioned if somebody was going to pay him 10 to $12 an hour, he would have never told a joke. You know, he was kind of at the point where he just needed a job and just wanted to survive. And um, luckily for him, he struck it big in 1984. He did some stand-up at New York City's Catch a Rising Star Club. Normally, with the actors we cover, we would talk a little bit about early life, then we would get straight into film and TV work since you know we call ourselves a film podcast. But because stand-up is so core to who Chris Rock is as a performer and everything he's done in the entertainment industry, we're going to start with his stand-up highlights. Early on in his stand-up career, he met Eddie Murphy, who became a mentor and somebody he worked with several times throughout his career. Started gaining some success. He That led him to joining SNL in 1990. And he was there for a few years until he was fired. And I put that in air quotes. And we'll talk about that here in a couple minutes. But 91 is when he released his first stand-up album. It's called Born Suspect. Three years later, he released Big Ass Jokes. And then in 96, he released Bring the Pain, which won him two Emmy Awards. So by this time, he's, he's really starting to establish his name in the stand-up world as, mm -hmm. as a stand-up comedian. He got two Emmys? Mm-hmm. Two for that album. Right. Yep. For that one. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Yep. From what I understand, Bring the Pain is like, it's not the one that like really put him like over the edge and everyone like kind of fell in love with him, but that's the one that kind of put him on. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I went back and watched it later, like after I kind of 
found him when I was younger. And it's it's hilarious, obviously, but it's that's the one that I feel like really got him out in front of everybody and put him on to where like this is someone that's gonna kind of change some things in stand up. I read an article that Bring the Pain was huge for him because at the time a lot of people thought that his career was kind of being fizzled out. Wow. Because he had just been on SNL and it didn't mm-hmm. really go as well as as he wanted it to. And in 94, this kind of, he was sort of reintroduced with a bang, basically. I, I was looking up a picture of this stand-up and I'm pretty sure it's the one that they use in Me, Myself, and Irene. Oh, <laughs> When they go back, yeah. When they they watch they watch Richard Pryor when the kids are little, and then when they get older, they're all sitting on the couch. I'm pretty sure this is the one that they're watching. I'm just because he's in like the black leather jacket and the black shirt and everything. Talking about having his salad tossed. Yeah, (laughs) that's the stand up piece that I will always treasure and remember of him talking about toss salad in schools. (laughs) He says, um. The jail special. And he says, "What kind? You getting your salad toss means getting your asshole eaten out with jelly or syrup. First syrup. <laughs> oh man, that's disgusting. <laughs> and a lot of racial content. I think he's he's really early on in his stand-up career cornered the market on talking about race in a really intelligent way at that time in the mid nineties. Oh yeah." Was that stand-up for him kind of the equivalent of Eddie Murphy's Raw? I'd say Bigger and Blacker is probably a better equivalent for that. Okay. For him. Yep. I would equate Bring the Pain to Delirious. Mm. Okay, I got you. It's a good question, Warren, because next on here was talking about Bigger and Blacker in 99, which I think is the one that he is probably most known for in his career. And that got him a Grammy Award in 99 for, for some of the music that came along with it. So. This was the first stand-up of his that I found. So it's actually it's actually kind of strange because this is the first stand-up comedy special I remember watching ever. <laughs> wow, that's a high bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm very particular about my stand-ups now. <laughs> <laughs> I caught it like when I was young. I was 12 when it came out, so I probably caught it a couple years after that. So I probably don't know if I was – I'm definitely not the demographic he was targeting, but <laughs> I found it. And just fell in love with stand-up comedy because of it. And so going back and watching it, I haven't seen it in years. It's so sharp. It's so clever. He's so ahead of his time with the way he talks about politics and race and how he messages it with just really simple observational stuff. I think that's one of the reasons why I was able to catch on to it so young is because it's really basic observations that like, I hear from kids in my history class. They'll make a basic general observation that a lot of people overlook and he expands that into something really thoughtful. It's just hilarious. He's just a, a really funny dude. And this one, looking back at it now, this one took him like into the stratosphere. Everyone I knew yeah. knows this and would quote it all the time. I'm pretty sure this was a special. There's a bit in there about his little nephew being dumb because his mom goes clubbing all the time and doesn't teach him anything. Yes. Yes. And he goes, what's four plus four? And he's like, jello. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if you guys are like me and my friends, but anytime we had a tough question or a dumb question, we always answered it with jello. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is from that special, 100%. There are some parts that haven't aged well, but for the most part, he. He's he was definitely ahead of his time. I remember texting Aubrey about halfway through, and I was like, for the most part, he's pretty spot on even to this day with his comedy there. Yeah, which says a lot about him as just as a thinker, as someone who kind of talks about this stuff, which at the time wasn't everybody. Like he really kind of spearheaded this thing and and is doing a lot of what com- uh, comics are doing now. He was doing then, 
which is kind of wild to think about because he was touching on some stuff that at the time I would imagine would be pretty touchy to go into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think it's a great point, Aubrey. Following the heels of Bigger and Blacker, so he kind of takes the stand-up world by storm. In 2004, he released Never Scared. Got another Grammy for that. And four years later, he releases Kill the Messenger. Won a writing Emmy for that one. It's not another 10 years until he released a new stand-up, and that was Tambourine on Netflix. I didn't realize the whole story on Tambourine and the Total Blackout Tour. Getting ready for this podcast, I was treated once again being able to watch an episode of The Graham Norton Show. Mm. There is a great episode with Chris Rock, Kate Winslet, Idris Elba, and Liam Gallagher. And they're all on there. And if you've never seen the Graham Norton show, this would be a great episode to watch because it's really fun. And Chris Rock made so many just hilarious comments about being broke because of his divorce. And I have no clue. Like, that's why Tambourine and Total Blackout were made. I didn't realize that he made that special and he was touring Total Blackout because of that. And my favorite line of the whole interview is he takes uh, Graham Norton goes, so, uh, Money was a little bit of a problem these days, huh, Chris? And he said, yeah, you know, my wife got me. And he picks a glass of water and he takes a drink, just a little itty drink, and he sets it back down. And he goes, you see that drink I just took? My wife gets 30% of that. (laughs) 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 Really funny. A little self-deprecation from him. You got to love it. Throughout his career, he's really received nine primetime Emmy noms for his stand-up work. And all that kind of led to a Comedy Central poll from a few years ago where he was rated the fifth greatest stand-up of all time. No big deal. Damn. Do we know who's ahead of him? It's Richard Pryor, George Carlin, Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce, yeah. And Woody Allen. That list doesn't age well. Bill Cosby was number eight, so uh, this list is... This list is we could just move him to fourth then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. let's, let's just go ahead and move Chris Rock to number four. <laughs> Eddie Murphy's Eddie Murphy's ten. God, this God, this list is Roseanne Barr is number nine. <laughs> All right, so yeah, this is a weird poll because I was talking to some of my friends about where he kind of where he kind of places in history because I think of it more like sports, like like eras. So mm-hmm. I don't even like really compare him to like Richard Pryor or anything like that because it's yeah, just different eras. And of point. his era, I'm not sure that there's anybody better than him, or right. at least more influential. So like, that's, that's why I asked. Cause his, he's just a, a all out legend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. I'd, I'd agree a hundred percent. The only person I would say is, is Seinfeld, but that's just cause I love Jerry Seinfeld. He paved the way for Chappelle to do what he did. And then he you know, paved mm-hmm. the way for the next person, just like prior and Eddie Murphy had done for him with you know, mm-hmm. Carlin and everything. So yeah, eras is an awesome way. A little, the, the dynasty. I, like I love that. that. Mm-hmm. Great. The only way I would give him a, a, a nudge over Seinfeld, Rigby, I appreciate his social commentary. And I don't know uh, that Seinfeld did a ton of that. Yeah, all he did was talk about fucking airline peanuts. Uh, peanuts? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he did it masterfully. I like rock because of that. More yeah. socially relevant. Yeah. That mm-hmm. It could be a super deep allegory we just don't get, but I'm pretty sure he was just talking about peanuts. So that kind of gives you a, a, a good foundation as we talk about Chris Rock, his very incredible success from a stand-up comedian standpoint. Taking a step back again to his SNL background, he's a cast member from 90 to 93, 57 episodes. So he's on there for quite a while. He also hosted SNL twice. So in 2014, he made his return. And then once again in 2020. So very recently, he was back on SNL. 
from my search of his old SNL skits, it seemed like he was doing a lot of commentary. I didn't see as many characters like we would have saw with Maya Rudolph, like her the mm-hmm. breadth of characters that she used to do. It seemed like Chris Rock was mostly himself and most of them and doing a lot of social commentary. He doesn't have a ton of characters in which like no. looking back on his career, it kind of makes sense. Like him being on SNL almost doesn't make sense to me yep. because he's not like a character type guy. He basically yeah. did like stand up bits. Like mm-hmm. my favorite stuff that I saw was when he would do weekend update stuff. Mm-hmm. Cause it's basically yeah. just like, here's two minutes go. It's him riffing. Yeah. Yep. Like the first weekend update one I watched today was verbatim from one of his stand-up specials. And so I was like, okay. It was almost like, he, I don't know what came first, right? Or if he was trying it out on SNL and then just put it into a stand-up special or vice versa. But I mean, it killed. I'm sure it was fantastic at the time. Yeah, I watched several of his weekend update stuff and it's all good. It's all really funny. But that's just, I just kept looking and I'm like, I don't think I'm going to find any characters here, which I'm kind of okay with. The one thing that makes him perfectly suited to do weekend update is that hilarious little smile that he has after he makes a punchline. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. The presentation style translates very well to his stand-up work. So it was a a good three-year run for him. He left to go to In Living Cover, which we'll talk about here in a a second. That's SNL. That's stand-up. That kind of gives you a baseline for who Chris Rock is. Let's get into his film and TV work. 1991 is going to be his first feature film. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But pre-1991, his first ever role was on Crush Groove. He was person standing next to club phone during fight scene slash uncredited in 1985. And I believe that was a Run DMC project in 85 as well. I think I found a s- small clip online from that. And But then he followed that up in 87 with his first kind of notoriable role. And that was in Beverly Hills Cop 2 as the parking valet who interacts with Eddie Murphy, who, as we talked about, was one of his stand-up mentors. That same year, he was in an episode of Miami Vice. And I was looking online, and I guess a lot of the Miami Vice fans say that the episode he was in, called Missing Hours, might be the worst episode. I don't think it has anything to do with Chris Rock. Really? I saw a bunch of stuff on YouTube clips by fan accounts that are like, this is the worst episode of Miami Vice. So take that for what you will. Miami Vice is number one new show. (laughs) Number one new show. (laughs) Have a time. You should come around in the winter. Very depressing. Where's the beef? (laughs) But it's not until 1988 that you really get to see kind of his talents on screen in I'm Gonna Get You Sucka as the rib joint customer in 1988, which is a black exploitation parody because it's from the Wayans Brothers, very much in the ilk of Don't Be a Menace from a parody standpoint. And it was right up my alley. This movie's great. <laughs> so I saw this movie when I was younger. I saw this when I was like young, young. Because like my parents love this movie. So, so I watched this when I was young, but I kind of forgot about it. So I revisited. This movie is amazing. It's just completely nonsensical. Nothing really makes sense. And it's hilarious the entire time. His character is just gold, which it turns his character turns into an in living color character yep. that he does again later. And it's just hilarious going into the rib joint, trying to get one rib for 50 cents. It's, <laughs> it's Isaac Hayes is like one rib and thinking like one full rack. He's like, no, a rib. For 50 cents. <laughs> the best part is after he's trying to negotiate 15 cents for a sip of soda. And he goes, fuck the cup. How about put, some, put it in my hand for a dive? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's not, I guess not a cameo, but it's a great little appearance for him. And also, I can't talk about this movie without talking about arguably the greatest cinematic character to ever exist, which is Fly Guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's so good, man. <laughs> 
But that takes us to 91, to our first feature film. And Aubrey is our guest, uh, takes my review. And in this case, I would have done first feature film. So Aubrey gets to step in and talk about New Jack City. Yeah, so New Jack City uh, from 1991, probably, uh, I would consider it one of the most influential movies on hip-hop culture ever. Maybe even one of the most referenced movies in hip-hop ever, which is kind of how I found it. I was a huge hip-hop head when I was younger. So all the references to the Carter and, you know, Brown and Cash Money was something that I just heard all the time. And I went back and caught up with this. And it's basically just a movie that tells the story of Nino Brown and the Cash Money Brothers and their rise during the height of the crack epidemic and the cops that were trying to stop them. And so what I love about this movie is, one, it's just entertaining. So just like the first time I watched it, I was like a teenager and it's just a wonderfully entertaining movie. It's a fun little movie like that. And that's mainly because Wesley Snipes, he's a man, absolutely Mm -hmm. kills this movie. Mm -hmm. He is incredible as Nino Brown and everyone's pretty good except for maybe Ice-T. You're not wrong. He's, I just don't think he's ever really that good, but I respect him, but everyone's pretty good. But Wesley Snipes is really, he's kind of what you're watching. You go through it the first time. Going back to watch it, now a little bit older. Things have changed a little bit. I understand the world a little bit better. And what I love about this movie is it kind of shows the dichotomy of of blackness during the crack epidemic. You get to see it from all different terms. Like we know what the crack epidemic did to black people specifically. But you get to see it in a really, really I don't want to say nuanced, but a raw way. You see from the user, from the dealer, from the community or the people that are trying to stop it, you get to see what the crack epidemic is doing to, to the black community. And I think that is why this movie holds up so well. It kind of stands the test of time because you get to see a real firsthand look at what that, what that did. And for Chris Rock specifically, it's, a, it's an iconic character, as troubling as that probably is for him. His, his character Pookie. is just... <laughs> is completely iconic. Everyone knows who Pookie from New Jack City is. And then if you reference it, everyone knows what that means. And he's pretty good in that role. Like mm-hmm. The movie is a little over the top just in general, but I think that's more of a representation of the time than it is the performances. And he does a pretty good job. He gives a lot of heart to that character. He gives a lot of heart to those people, people that suffer through that. Um, and his demise in that movie, mm-hmm. it, spoiler, for those of you that haven't seen New Jack City yet, <laughs> why are you listening to this? <laughs> Figure it out. <laughs> um, his demise is sad. So, like, to look back at it as someone who really, really loves hip hop music, to hear, like, see all of the aspects of this movie, it's just, it's, it's an incredible film. It's probably some of the better acting that he's done over his career, for sure. And this is not really related to Chris Rock, but that opening scene, the opening shot is like one of the more, one of the cooler opening shots in, in, a lot of movies that I've seen where he's hanging off the bridge. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. The way they film that is incredible. Mm-hmm. Aubrey, what you were saying about the, the impact, you know, I, I didn't tie it together. So, I mean, I, I enjoy Lil Wayne. And so you have a Carter and a cash money boys and all that stuff. So that's all, mm-hmm. you know, paying paying tribute to this. I, I just, that, that makes, that makes total sense. Which makes the movie hit different now. But just to like pick up on all that, I think it would definitely make me appreciate it more just how much of an impact it has. That's pretty awesome. For sure. Because there's an element of, of hip hop culture where you, Nino Brown is what you strive to be. So like mm-hmm. being a young black man, like I look at Nino Brown and there's a part of me that's like, yo, Nino Brown, 
he's got it all, even though he's a terrible person. Mm-hmm. Not, I don't see that. I see all the cool stuff that he has. So mm-hmm. for the movie to even show you that and kind of show you how much of a veil that is and what it does to the community, it's really strong. I love this movie going into it, but I went away watching it um, this time around. Yeah, I think it's definitely aged very well 30 years later. Do you right. think Do you think Anthony Anderson's uh, co-worker in... <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, let's burn this motherfucker down. No, but he, you know, his 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 coworker in that movie is he calls him Pookie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me and my pal Pookie. <laughs> you, you, think, you think that was? It could have been him just kind of winging it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean that's a random ass name. <laughs> call someone if it's. If- I feel like it's targeted. <laughs> let's burn this motherfucker down, Pookie. The most ironic part about this movie is something you said earlier, Aubrey, and that Ice-T is probably the worst part of this in terms of just pure acting. And he goes on, like, without New Jack City, I don't think you get Ice-T on Law & Order SVU for 20 years. And, like, who is iconic with a great joke by John Mulaney that highlights the absurdity of Ice-T's character. And uh, I just don't think it would have happened without his character in New Jack City. I firmly believe that. Who would have pegged Ice-T? <laughs> Being a cop in his two biggest roles. Ice. <laughs> He's a cop. Ice T <laughs> investigates sexual assault crimes. <laughs> he handles New York's most sensitive cases. That's New Jack City. Before our next review, we've got an eight year span, so 92 to 2000. In 92, he's in Boomerang as Boney T. Follows that up the next year in 93 with another one that I watched that I. Really enjoyed CB4. He plays Albert slash MC okay. Gusto. He was the co-writer of that rapumentary and it also features a, a fantastic role by Phil Hartman and Charlie Murphy just killing the game in that one. CB4 is great. <laughs> it's so great. I mean, there's there's two things I thought about when I when I was looking at CB4. First of all, is the parody of Straight Out of Compton, Straight mm-hmm. Out of Low Cash. <laughs> and they do almost a shot for shot video and then and then he's brought up phil hartman and there's that hilarious scene when they incite the prison riot where uh-huh. phil hartman gives them the the ridiculous forms of censorship from their iconic hit sweat for my balls <laughs> they were told to that perform and i i was re-watching that and it just made me laugh because i i forgot that there were big giant balloons that they were acting like with their balls that they just started kicking out into the crowd. <laughs> it's great. I also think like it shows kind of how smart Chris Rock is with this kind of stuff. Because apparently, yes. Because so the, what the movie I thought about when I was watching this was Pop Star Never Stop Never Stopping, mm-hmm. which is a movie that I <laughs> deeply love. Yeah, we love that movie. You found good company because we love it. Not a lot of people talk about that movie. Not not enough. But I thought about that, especially at the beginning when you're getting interviews in their documentary from other rappers and the rappers that they're parroting are in the movie. But the fact that he's able to to parody something, but put a little bit of weight behind it because he's Mm -hmm. parroting gangster rap and kind of poking fun at it. But he's also poking fun at like political establishment and how they're responding to it and why they're responding to it and capitalism. And he's poking at all kinds of things with this parody. And so like, it's, it's a hilarious movie just cause it's stupid. It's also funny to watch and, and really well put together from that, from the parody standpoint. I didn't realize he had written that. That's interesting to know. Co-writer from the brain of Chris Rock, for sure on that one, you could definitely t- sense his, uh, his comedic style throughout that one. Mm-hmm. 
So in 97, a couple years later, he joined his SNL co-star, Chris Farley, in Beverly Hills Ninja as Joey. And Chris Rock's role is pretty limited in that one. He's not not super prominent. He's kind of, he's helping out Farley throughout the movie. Yeah. But he is in Dr. Doolittle in 98 quite a bit as Rodney, the guinea pig, um, which is, I guess, his first voiceover role, which he does quite mm-hmm. a bit in his, his career. And uh, his voice stands out as a, as a voice actor. He stands out like a sore thumb um, with his characters. And the guinea pig is a perfect example of it because that guinea pig is just like hyperactive and in your face. But I did rewatch Dr. Doolittle for the episode that brought that back to 23 years or whatever it was. Yeah, I, I definitely remember his voice, and it's, yeah, he's a pretty pretty prominent one because this yeah. is like his daughter's guinea pig, and so like the first time that he can remember hearing, except from when he was a kid. So it's like his his relationship and his his kind of relationship with Eddie Murphy, and you can definitely tell they have a good back and forth. That was going to be my other note. It's it's another collab with his mentor Eddie Murphy, which he hit crosses over quite a few times. Um, 98, he enters the world of Lethal Weapon, and Lethal Weapon 4 is Lee. I loved him in this movie. It was good to see him with such established and like well-known actors and be able to get in and just mix it up. I mean, at the time, Mel Gibson, no one was bigger. Danny Glover, nobody was bigger. Rene Russo, no one was bigger. Pesci, no one was bigger, and, and he fit right in and, and traded shots with all those guys. Mm-hmm. Didn't he add a comedic element to the movies that they really didn't have up to that point? He was bringing on the new audience because this was yeah. 98. Mm-hmm. So it was the year before mm-hmm. uh, Bigger and Blacker. And That's so right. For him to pop up at this time. Because it was how many how many years after the first one? Well, the first one was 87. So this would have been 12 years. Yeah, this would have been 10 years almost. Yeah. Lethal Weapon 3 was in 92. So this was six years after that quite a pause that was the one that made the most money by far yeah you know at that at that point they brought they brought everybody back you got you know bring in him and he also got jet lee jet lee is a bad guy he was great yeah. he was awesome jet lee. definitely and the first one is obviously the best lethal weapon but and because it has gary Busey as the villain but <laughs> just in terms of pure badass jet lee's character is the most he's the best bad guy of that series i think and then it follows up 99 he's in dogma as rufus i love this role i love it for him i i think dog dogma is one of the more underrated kevin smith movies and his character rufus he's like a guardian angel and so he's like a foul-mouthed guardian angel and it's it's great mm-hmm. well the turn of the century happens it's 2000 you know will ennium is upon us and we hit. <laughs> I did not plan for that. Someone Sometimes. casually dropped that in the sink. Yeah, dude, you, you've had that one written for three weeks. <laughs> no, I haven't. I, I literally was. I was going to say Millennium, and I was like, wait, this is a perfect opportunity to talk about Will Smith. People didn't drop that reference when that song was out. <laughs> Listen, don't you hate on that album? It had some bangers on it. I will stand by that. Uh, and that takes us to his largest critic gap in 2000. That is Nurse Betty, and Warren's got it. Not a good way to break in the new year. Um, <laughs> Not as good as Willennium. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, it, it's for the look. I don't like it. <laughs> so this this movie is it was not good. I, I went into it thinking with a 83 critic, 45 audience. Big gap. I have no idea what these critics are thinking. The cast is incredible. Chris Rock, Morgan Freeman, Greg Kinnear, 
Renee Zellweger. Who the fuck is Renee Zellweger? <laughs> Crispin Glover, Allison Janney. Like it, it goes, it does go on and on. But the movie, the movie's got a really fucked up um, Aaron Eckhart. So she plays, she plays just this Midwestern, or she lives in Kansas. She's kind of just your run of the mill small girl or small town girl. Works in the diner. Is absolutely in love with this. Um, soap opera and she her her husband at the time is caught up in stuff with drugs she witnesses him getting scalped <laughs> like mm-hmm. chris chris rock scalps aaron eckhart and he's wearing a mullet so he deserves it <laughs> but she scalps she scalps him and like it's so traumatic for her that she like blows a fuse in her head and she forgets all about that it's she's compensating for it and so she then thinks that she is a part of the um the soap opera like cinematic universe and then she's a character who's a long lost lover for greg kinnear's character she drives to um drives to la and in her mind she's like oh i'm his i we were engaged and i broke it up and all this shit and she gets there and she still thinks that it's part of the real world. And then she kind of snaps out of it when he brings her on set because he thinks that she's just trying to get a role in the show. He takes advantage of her. And I'm pretty sure they bang at one point. And then the movie just ends with Chris Rock and Morgan Freeman dying and her ending up back in Kansas. The movie has every, it's like, it's going to be funny. It's going to be sad. It's going to be suspenseful. It's going to be the, it just, it just, it's garbage. And it, it just can't pick and choose what emotion it wants to convey. And I just, I did not like it at all. The funniest part was that the, like near the very end, Chris Rock has a bunch of people tied up in a room and he's holding them <laughs> hostage. And Chris Rock is like the heavy in this movie, which is mm-hmm. not something that he, like, Normally does, yeah. It, to to quote a later movie of his, he is as maniacal as a box full of kittens. Like he's holding a gun to this guy's head, and the guy's like, "Please don't shoot me! I've got two kids and a dog." And he hits him with the butt of his gun. He goes, "Who doesn't?" <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I thought that was fucking hilarious. <laughs> but I just like anytime he was trying to be serious because he was playing uh, Morgan Freeman's son, mm-hmm. and. Morgan Freeman being the nicer of the two is still more intimidating because I think a stature and it's probably just because I also know Chris Rock uh, at, at this point in life, you know, in, in, in 2000, I'm sure it would have come off a little bit different, especially if I, you know, just watch bigger and blacker, um, just kind of being like this, you know, he goes from from the one of the biggest stand-ups of the time to being kind of this intimidating presence. In retrospective, I didn't watch it. Obviously, I didn't see it for the Alice and Janie episode, but I don't think it would affect her score one way or the other. She she's not asked to do much in her role as a producer on the on the show, so there's that at least. She's fine. She was the most realistic character in yes, this she whole was. thing. Yes, she was. She was the one who was like don't fuck with her, Greg. Don't, don't <laughs> fuck with her. She's trouble. Yeah. Don't do it. 
It's an odd one. If you like weird premises that are like a mix of, an, it felt like an indie film combined with a bunch of A-list actors and kind of combining those together, this is what you get. It's very split. It's a huge critic gap. All right, so over the next couple of years, first off, he crosses over with William Hurt in AI Artificial Intelligence. He plays a robot comedian in a very brief role. And then he's in 2001's Louis C.K. written and directed Pootie Tang as JB radio DJ and Pootie's father. He also produced this one. And Aubrey, I know you have thoughts on this. I have thoughts. I'm not a better person for having seen Pootie Tang. So I don't know if this is like a brilliant movie that I don't understand or the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> I think it's the latter. I'm leaning towards the latter. <laughs> so I'm watching this movie and I text my two friends and I'm like, you know, have you seen Pootie Tang? And they immediately start laughing and go, yes, it's a cult classic. And I go, what the hell are you talking about? This movie is terrible. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I will say one positive thing. Maybe the funniest thing I saw in watching all of these movies to prepare for this was in this movie. And it was when he recorded his silent song. <laughs> that <was hilarious. laughs> That's true. Everybody, in a, they show all these people in all these different settings, like kids at a diner, just like moving <laughs> to silence. Like, yeah, that's my silent song. Like, go fuck yourself. It, that was hilarious. It's It's probably... It's definitely in the conversation for the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I gave it a 2 of 10 on IMDb, so it's it's there for me, too. It's awful. Unlike Warren not recommending Nurse Betty, I recommend people see Pootie Tang and draw their own conclusions, 100%. But don't keep your bar low. That's where I would go. I will not recommend this to anybody. <laughs> I do what I did up until about three days ago and just avoid it and pretend like it didn't happen. Sorry, Aubrey. <laughs> the, the only thing that I actually know... You know, from this movie, it actually has nothing to do with this movie. This is Scary Movie Three, <laughs> but when the aliens come to Earth and they claim to have watched a video that they, <laughs> they watch was, Booty Tag. They that's right. Booty, they watch Booty Tag. <laughs> 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 they wanted Booty Tag, and they watched the the Ring video. <laughs> okay, that's right. I totally forgot about that. Well, it's got pop culture impact. We'll say that. Two thousand one. He's the title character in Osmosis Jones, an animated film. And then he follows it up the same year with his role as Shaka Luther King in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. He's great in this. He's great. They needed him in there because he just off, he just brings this very different character than Rufus. And that's kind of one thing that Kevin Smith's known for is bringing in like the same actor to play completely different roles in his movies. And then he brings them all together in like one movie where they have to play the different characters multiple times. Mm -hmm. But him is Shaka Luther King. He's a director. He's directing Blunt Man and Chronic. And he is like he recognizes he's the only black person in this movie. And all of his jokes are basically hitting like hitting on that. <laughs> and like Jamie Kennedy is uh, like a you know an assistant to him, and he's like, "Did you bring me a coffee?" He goes, "You spit in it, didn't you? You spit in my coffee." He goes, "Do you tell your dad you bring a black man his coffee?" He goes, "It'd kill him. It'd kill him." Wouldn't it? <laughs> and he slaps it out of his hand and goes, "Clean that up." Matter of fact, give me a blonde-haired white boy to clean that up. <laughs> and, and Jamie Kennedy goes, you're the man, sir. And he goes, no, you're the man, and that's the problem. <laughs> it's just he, all, all he does is like joke after joke after joke on that. 
And it it just it fits so well. And it's so like self aware of the entire movie. I'm pretty sure Kevin Smith's in the background, like looking at the camera the entire time. He's saying all this stuff. So good. Because he's only in like one scene, right? Yeah, I, I, um, this is a movie I've I've seen twenty twenty five yeah. times. <laughs> this is when you guys reference Affleck's The Bomb and Phantoms. This is what you're quoting, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. That's what I thought. Two years later, he uh, plays the lead role in Head of State. He's the director and producer of that one. A crossover with Keith David, who's in I think one scene in the movie about a what's the the synopsis of Head of State as his character is Maze. He's He's selected to run for president, right? Yeah, he's because, an alder- yeah. he's an alderman in uh, like a DC neighborhood. DC, yeah, that's right. I think it's both the Democratic candidates die, and they needed someone mm-hmm. that they could run but wouldn't win, so the other, so one of the people behind them could win in four years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they wanted to bring on somebody to appeal to new demographics, so that when James Rebhorn ran that they would be like, oh, mm-hmm. this is this is the party of like progressiveness and acceptance and everything. And then it backfires because he does very well. Yeah, I kind of like this movie. I didn't mind it. Yeah. It's it's very light for a political movie and they hit on a lot of political items while being very mm-hmm. like light about it. Also Bernie Mac is is great in this movie. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Bernie Mac shows up in this movie and it's just Gives it a shot in the arm. He's amazing in this movie. For those who haven't seen it, he takes on his brother as his vice president, who is Bernie Mac. <laughs> Unconventional choice, uh, but Bernie Mac comes in and knocks some sense into people. Literally. It was a fun one. This sounds like the one movie we've all seen at this point. Like, everybody's seen Head of State. I predicted that. He's, he's a lead in it, so it's a good one to watch if you're going to watch one with Chris Rock. So Head of State featured who we be idea <laughs> rest in peace that's kind of a theme in his movies and to not drag this down it was kind of sad and down to earth he has like a whole rough riders anthem like bit that is done when he's the old yep. white man i mean not to spoil top five but dmx is gives maybe yep. the greatest cameo in the history of cameos in that movie <laughs> his his cam his cameo actually in some or uh some 41's music video <laughs> I actually recommend going and finding that. He, they were, they were both in Toronto filming a music video, and uh, DMX rides through a, a house party for two seconds on a four wheeler. <laughs> that 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 might be the greatest cameo of all time. <laughs> well, then 2002 comes, and we hit his lowest critic score, and that's a bad company. And Case is going to talk about it. Title's a little foreshadowing, boys. Bad company. <laughs> Bad Company. All right. Bad Company is a uh, 2002 action comedy thriller directed by Joel Schumacher and produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. And it stars Chris Rock and Sir Anthony Hopkins. And so far, you might be thinking to yourself, this is going to be a great movie. Yeah. No. No, no, no. You would be wrong. You would be wrong. <laughs> the movie really struggled in the box office. It lost $4 million. It's one of his few movies that lost money, <laughs> you know, the critics came in at a whopping 10%, followed uh, not too far by the fans at a 35, probably closer to the fans and the critics. But, you know, I remember watching this movie when it came out and I enjoyed it and watching it for this podcast, it doesn't hold up as, as well as I probably thought it would have with the ingredients we've already talked about. But here's a quick rundown on the plot. Chris Rock plays... Both Kevin Pope, a.k.a. Michael Turner, and Jack Hayes. 
Kevin Pope is Jack Hayes' identical twin, and they were separated at birth. Kevin Pope, a.k.a. Michael Turner, is a CIA agent. Jack Hayes is a street-smart ticket salesman, whoop-your-ass-in-chess-at-the-park guy. During a CIA mission, Agent Pope is killed while on assignment with Anthony Hopkins in Prague. In order to complete the purchase of this deadly bomb from terrorists, Hopkins needs Pope. The problem is, he's dead. So the only solution? His twin brother, J.K. Mm-hmm. This actually could have been a really good role for Chris Rock to showcase two completely different ends of the spectrum as he's having to portray two completely different characters. Had he done this movie 10 years later, I think he would have had better range to pull this character off. Accurate. Combine that, he's working alongside Anthony Hopkins, who's an incredible actor. A legend. Yeah. One of the few traits in this movie for me, however, is the villain, Peter Stormare, who literally plays the same character in every single movie as the villain. <laughs> and, I, and I love watching him every time. He's fantastic. You know, as a film, there isn't really anything that sets us apart from any other spy or CIA movies. I started kind of having a comparison movie that I unfairly started comparing it to. And it's actually the 98 Enemy of the State movie. When you start looking at the two of them side by side, they have a ton in common from how they were casted, how the movie was directed. A lot of cinematography is the same. And they were both produced by Bruckheimer. However, where I think Enemy of the State distinguishes itself as a better movie is I think it decided what kind of movie it was going to be. It was an action thriller with a little bit of comedy, whereas Bad Company tries to be all of them equally. That being said, though, it's it's not a tough watch, and albeit not great in his role, he's still entertaining. The chemistry between him and Hopkins is enjoyable. I do understand why it got rated as lowly as it did for both critics and fans. Yeah, I didn't think Chris Rock was bad. I think he was good when he was able to do what he does. This movie was actually slated to come out right after 9-11 occurred. They pushed it back to later in the year because of the you know, the terrorism plot. angle yeah. and all that stuff. And this was the last major film production to be filmed inside the World Trade Center. Oh, that's unique. That's very interesting. Yeah. Three years later, he plays probably one of his more well-known roles as caretaker in The Longest Yard. I like this movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, I do too. It's a fun movie. He's good in it, man. He's hilarious in it too, for sure. The chemistry between him and Sandler is awesome. Who are you going to kill? What God. makes Sandler so great in this is he he just, like, he's a vessel for comedy in this. He's not trying to make the, the humor. He's not... You know, he's not doing grown-ups-esque stuff. And so yeah. it, it really makes this movie more enjoyable. And the cast is great. You get uh, all the wrestlers in there and everything. It's it's a fun movie. Is this the first time that he works with Sandler on the film side? Oh, it's got to be. Good question. Film side, I think so. Because obviously we're going to talk about a lot more. Five years since uh, SNL at this point. Yeah, I guess this would have been the first one. First of many. Yeah. The longest this also him just doing a Morgan Freeman uh, from yeah. Shawshank Redemption impression. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Get you anything you need. One of the things that I liked about this Longest Yard as a remake, it had such a different tone than the original that it was easy to enjoy next to it. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yep. yep, and I love that they repurposed Burt Reynolds into a different role, too. I thought that was yeah. good. 
yeah smart in their part it was like him him giving it a, a nod being like you know what I'm, I'm good with this that same year it's a big year for him he he makes his appearance in Madagascar as Marty, another one of his prominent voice roles. He sounds awesome compared to David Schwimmer. <laughs> this is true. Very accurate. Um, the first of five roles, I mean, he's in three different Madagascar movies and then a couple shorts that we'll mention a few of them movies that go forward. Really funny in that. Yes, he is. It's him and the penguins that carry that first movie. For sure. Those penguins are amazing. Yeah, I don't think the Madagascar movies get talked about enough as just good animated films. Like they're solid for the first one. I honestly like whenever they try to do one that was exclusively penguins. Then it got then it got mm-hmm. rough, and then it was one that was like exclusively lemurs. I was like, good lord! Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, minions. Like yeah. minions were great in small doses, and then they made an entire movie about minions. It was like I don't speak made up words, and like <laughs> they're kind of beating that. the jokes. And you won't like Tang is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Madagascar is one of the few animated movie series that we've looked at that the ratings have actually gone up. The first oh, yeah. two weren't rated very well, but by the time you get to three, it's, they're finally getting into 70s for both of them. Jesus Christ. Two years later, he directs and plays Richard, and I think I love my wife. I didn't really care for the movie all that much. I don't think it really works in the way that he kind of wanted it to, but I do think it highlighted two things. Um, that I found interesting. One, you can kind of see, I read an interview that he did, I think it was with Vulture, and he cited a bunch of people that he was really influenced by, or people that he wanted to kind of work with or be around. And he was talking about like Richard Linklater and mm-hmm. Woody Allen and and like high level people. This was an older interview, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of artistic, you know, cinema guys. And I think you can see the Woody Allen influence that is on him with this movie. Which as a director, you see you see come out more and more because I think you can see it in top five also. And then I also think you see it in Two Days in New York, which he didn't direct, but Yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's very Woody, Woody Allen like mm-hmm. I told you, Rigby. You did. You said it's like Woody Allen. You can see that this movie, even though it's not I don't think it works that well, you can see that he has uh he has the talent to tell a, a story of this of this nature mm-hmm. well, which comes to fruition later. That's good. Same year, the last movie I watched before we recorded, which is delightful, is the B movie. And he plays a character named Mooseblood, who is a mosquito who's in two scenes. And kind of has a funny scene at the end when he becomes a lawyer and he says, I'm already a blood-sucking parasite. And they just gave me a briefcase. <laughs> I thought that was funny. But he's not really in it much. It's, it's Jerry Seinfeld's movie as the main B. Mm-hmm. In 08, he plays a taxi driver in one scene, and you don't mess with the Zoan. So we see some more Sandler there. 2008 as well, he's in the second Madagascar, Escape to Africa. And then in 2009, he produces and writes and hosts a documentary called Good Hair, which Kelsey and I got really into. We watched it in multiple settings, and it's a documentary about black women's hair. And he travels all over the world to explore the world and the, especially the financial side of weaves and how much people pay for that and where it comes from in India. It was a really fascinating documentary to watch. Dude, it's a great documentary. It's good. I feel almost, it's good I almost feel like it's kind of underrated because I didn't really hear much about it. It's great. And what works so well is that he's able to infuse like just a basic observation, which is what his standup is kind of centered around Mm -hmm. a basic observation about black women's hair. And he takes it to such an intellectually creative, satisfying place. You learn so much about like 
systemic, the things that are going on, the, mm-hmm. the economics behind it, but it's saying to people, and he never really offers much of an opinion. No, no. Kind of is just giving you a ton of information and let you figure out what you want to do with it. It's a great documentary. I was blown yeah. away by this one. Yeah, it was really good. If you guys get a chance, and if you're listening, check it out. It's, I think it's on Tubi and Prime. It's a good, it's a good watch. Good hour and a half. It was the top rated thing like top rated item that he did oh yeah oh interesting. i didn't include it because it was you know a documentary yeah he's interviewing the whole time so he's not really sure. acting but yeah he does yeah, that yeah. he does that well too and they interview some really fascinating people and it crescendos at a uh basically like a hairdressing competition in atlanta where they do these like really extravagant skits around hairdressing it's fascinating to watch and then in 2010 we see which i think is probably the biggest at this point the biggest months in crossover movie we've covered and that's death at a funeral he plays aaron with james marsden regina hall and keith david i think that's the most i think four months in. i think four is the most mm-hmm. yeah so i would think so. death at a funeral funny his role is pretty funny in that, and we enjoy James Marsden as the drugged up naked guy on the roof in that one for sure. He's great. <laughs> He's great. He's great. For a like a funeral movie, it's it's so light and mm-hmm. it's it's definitely enjoyable. And what's wild is this movie was directed by the same guy who did Nurse Betty. No shit. That's yeah. wild. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 2010, grown ups, largest audience gap. James would normally cover it, but again, wedding things. So I'm going to step in for him. This is kind of fun for me because it's like the backward review on the Maya Rudolph edis- episode. I did the Grown Ups 2 review. Ooh, had wow. never seen actual Grown Ups. And you loved it, right, Kyle? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was just blown away. Cinematic masterpiece. <laughs> Terrence Malick asked. I mean, I was blown away from start to Dude, finish. Terrence Malick blows. This is better, <laughs> this is better than Terrence Malick. Um, did not love Grown Ups 2. I can confidently say I liked Grown Ups better than Grown Ups 2. Low bar, but Agreed. I did like it better. Mm-hmm. The split is huge, so everyone knows it's a 62-11 on Rotten Tomatoes. 62 for the audience, 11 for critics. So critics did not like this at all. Uh, it's interesting to watch a movie like this when you've seen the sequel first and kind of seeing things go backwards. What I will tell you, just very quickly, because we talked about Grown Ups 2 before, Chris Rock plays a character named Kurt McKenzie. They call him McKenzie. He is the least important of the five. In terms of like coverage and the storyline, they barely talk about his character throughout the movie. Uh, Maya, his wife, gets a little bit more coverage in terms of some of the jokes and screen time. But when you look at Schneider, Spade, Sandler, and James, their characters definitely take more of a, a prominent role in the movie comparatively to Rock, which is kind of sad. But he had a couple highlights in the movie at the end when he and Tim Meadows are on the court as the only black guys on each of the teams. And they're like jockeying for who scares white people more in their small town. I thought that was kind of funny. And he's like, yeah, well, well, I go to the convenience store. White people run for me. I'm like, all right, that's that's kind of funny. But overall, basic gist, right? Their basketball coach dies and they all come back for Fourth of July. They spread his ashes and then it's them just tomfoolery and shooting arrows in the air and trying not to die when it hits the ground yeah chris chris rock has such a minimal role and they give him yeah. more of the second one but it's really like they play on such a racial stereotype for him where it was, you know the the scaring people but it's it's definitely in a humor purpose but then it's also both him and tim tim meadows are like by far the worst basketball players out of everybody yes this is true <laughs> and, they, and they totally drive that into the ground like three or four times in the movie with like flashbacks of them playing the game where adam sandler made a shot and that like mm-hmm. changed everybody's lives like all right it's grown-ups 
you know, if you like these type of Sandler movies, you know, wrap your alley, I guess. But over the next couple of years, in 2011, he makes an appearance on the Broadway side. He's in a play with Bobby Cannavale called The Motherfucker with the Hat. And he actually got a nomination, a Drama League Award nomination for some theater work, which is, I think, the only Ooh. theater work I could find. So good for him. One and done. You know, got some some noteworthy awards love there. That's got to be hard with the learning disability thing. Oh, yeah. Nonverbal uh, learning disability. That's yeah. got to be super hard on Broadway. Mm-hmm. That is super, super impressive. And, you know, that was one thing that I was thinking. I was very surprised when I read ahead and saw that where I was like, you know, I think it'd be really easy for him to get a Tony leading up to this. And then once you, you said that, I was like, oh, that's definitely why he doesn't have one. It's a great point. To not have the benefit of cut and reshoot over and over again. Yeah. That's tough. I didn't think about that either. 2012, he's in Two Days in New York, which Aubrey had mentioned. He plays a character named Mingus um, alongside Julie Delpy, who directed it. And said, that's that movie that's very Woody Allen-like. There's a recurring joke in the movie about uh, how his name sounds like Cunnilingus as Mingus. <laughs> that's probably the pinnacle of that movie for me, because otherwise I thought it was pretty forgettable. I thought it was fine. Yeah. Julie Delpy's great. Yeah. I kind of walked away from that movie being like, I was kind of amazed at what she did. And I like Chris Rock being in a different, it's a different mm-hmm. role, a little it more is. serious. He's The stuff is kind of being played off of him, which I like that he was able to kind of flex that muscle because you can see growth especially looking through his whole career, this isn't something that he could do before. Mm -hmm. And he does it well here. I think the movie just doesn't doesn't really fully come together. 2012, third Madagascar, a crossover with Brian Cranston and Jessica Chastain, which we've talked about a few times. And then Corn Ups 2 with Maya Rudolph in 2013. And that gets us to 2014's highest critic score. And that is going to be top five. And Rigby's got it. Top five, 2014 film written, starring, and directed by Chris Rock. I remember when this movie came out, it got really good reviews. It came out during Christmas time, I believe. It was like early December. And I didn't see it when it came out, but I do remember it, like I mentioned, it getting really good reviews and his performance was getting raved. I'm very thankful that I watched this because I really, really enjoyed it. The movie's kind of cool the way it's set up. It's basically like an autobiographical movie for rock. It's about a comedian who's looking back on his career while he's being interviewed for a story. And you can tell it's very personal for rock because a lot of it follows his 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 rise to stardom and and like what me what people might see as like a downfall and eventual rise again and it also has like a lot of his friends and like people that he's worked with adam sandler and cameos jerry seinfeld people that are you know you recognize throughout it's like chris rock has been in their movies and now they're kind of repaying the favor and like they're they're in his movies as cameos and and small characters so that was kind of cool Chris Rock, as I mentioned, he's a he plays Andre Allen. He's a a former comedian who is being interviewed by uh, a woman named Chelsea, who's a New York Times reporter played by Rosario Dawson, and it's just him reflecting on his career. And the movie eventually, he makes him realize that he needs to return to his his comedy roots in order to to be happy and do what, sort of what he's uh, what he feels most comfortable doing. So I'll keep that for my review. That's kind of it's kind of short, but I, I think we can talk about how personal of a movie it was for rock and he even said that i think he said in an interview that i read that this was his most personal film Hmm. and i would say it's one of his best performances and and it's obvious why it's a why it was so you know critically acclaimed at the time because i think people saw it for what it was just like a a really good movie with a cool premise and good performances and a movie that rock 
sort of saw as like his passion project and and I'm I'm really happy that it turned out well for him because I really enjoyed it. But I adore this movie. Like absolutely adore this movie. And I I saw this in theaters when it came out and I just hadn't revisited it for whatever reason. And I watched it a couple nights ago and I was blown away all over again. This is to me everything he's shown glimpses of throughout his career comes together here. Yeah. Perfectly. Mm-hmm. And you can really see his ability, like what he can actually do, you get to see in this movie. For sure. Really funny. He's got a good eye for like storytelling and how he wants to get things across. It's really personal, but I also think it's personal in the sense of he, he referenced this in one of the interviews I read. This also kind of is a bit like Eddie Murphy. Also, Eddie Murphy had a point in his career where people, he tried to go serious and people rejected him. And then, so what do you do then? So it was a bit of that because they're so close and plus his own, personal situation that he was that he was going through in his career. Mm-hmm. So I think all those things come together and it show showcases something else I found interesting going through his movies is as like it's not a romantic comedy, but there is a romance in it. Just kind of true with a lot of his movies. I would expect him and I remembered him and the perception I had of him is that he would be bad in those situations. He's not. He actually he has good chemistry with Rosario Dawson. And that's some stuff that I saw in some of his earlier movies. He was in down to earth with Regina King. They had good chemistry. For sure. Kerry Washington and I think I love my wife. They had good chemistry. Like he it's something that he's able to do kind of well in limited spaces. So I was intrigued by that. I think it's a great movie and it's one of the better comedies that I've seen in the past like 10 years. I remember when this movie was coming out because it was filmed at Sirius XM and I listened to a lot of talk shows on Sirius XM and they were always talking about seeing Chris Rock being in filming this movie. And so I had like two year buildup to watch this movie. And that is usually a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. You've waited so long to see a movie. And I loved it. One of the things that I like the most as a Chris Rock fan is that he loves this movie and it's the highest critic score. Yeah. I think that's really cool as a, yeah, that's as good. a Chris Rock fan. That makes you happy. As Aubrey mentioned, DMX is in it. He's in a he has a cameo where he's in jail and he sings a song. <laughs> it's amazing. It is really good. And it was kind of sad watching it, knowing that he died last week. Rest in peace, Earl. Yep. It's fantastic. I mean, the cameos, like I mentioned, it's like a who's who of Famous comedians from the last like twenty years. It's like Kevin Hart, Cedric the Entertainer, oh, Cedric. Whoopi Goldberg, Leslie Jones. Cedric the Entertainer's character is hilarious. Jazzy D, he's awesome. JB Smoove is in it. Mm-hmm. I think it showed for all of these people to come and want to be in this movie. I think showed you know how much they respect Rock and they saw it as like this. They saw this as his passion project, and I think they were probably honored that he asked them to be in it. He also creates Rosario Dawson's character really well. Yeah, for sure. What I read was a criticism that was of his, like he didn't treat female characters all that well, which you know is what it is. That's what I read. But Rosario Dawson is a great character in this. She got a showcase, and she is great in this movie. She's great. Yeah, that probably comes with his just experience as a director and working in the industry of like just writing better characters over time. She would be a great actress to cover. I would love an opportunity to cover her on this podcast. I agree. She's incredible. Mm-hmm. That's highest critic score. Last big category. We're going to round out the final six years of his film work. Just hit a couple highlights in here. Uh, 2019, he crosses over with Craig Robinson in Dolomite Is My Name as Bobby Vale. Great movie. One of the things I think is phenomenal about this is he doesn't really take much of a comedic role in a movie filled with people grabbing huge comedy parts. Mm-hmm. He's a radio DJ, right? And he's interviewing people. 
Yeah. Because I covered this movie on the Craig Robinson episode, and I remember his performance in there. The great was the nice performance. He doesn't take away any of the shine that you want from the other people. It's just kind of like yep. a, a person who do, progresses the plot. Yep. Yeah. Another Eddie Murphy collab. One of many. He's in The Witches, the remake of it that came out in 2020 as an older hero mouse. And then finally, most recently, I guess it would have been 2021, he's was supposed to be in Bad Trip, right, Craig? This is one of the few tragedies of his career. <laughs> <laughs> so for those that don't know, Bad Trip is a uh, basically a prank movie made by Eric Andre. And it is very much in the vein of his show. It's a really fun movie to watch if you haven't watched it. Bailed on Netflix. Yes. Chris Rock is supposed to play a, a cop who pulls over Eric Andre, who had just picked up a hitchhiker. And so he pulls pulls him over, and then, you know, he comes up to the window, and Chris Rock is basically going, you know, what the hell's going on? And then Eric Andre's like, hey, that guy was the one driving. I just switched seats with him. I don't know what's going on. So then it was about to be a great bit, and then all of a sudden the hitchhiker's like, hold on, aren't you Chris Rock? So then everybody, like, realized it was Chris Rock. They just let the scene play out, and then all these all these people, all these bystanders pulled out their cell phones and basically recorded Chris Rock beating the shit out of Eric Andre on the side of a road. It was really funny, and it's a shame it didn't make it into the movie, but it was it was funny. Yeah, it would have been good. And in this movie, it, it also featured Party Up by DMX in one of the scenes. <laughs> Craig's keeping track of all the DMX references. <laughs> I love it. He's our DMX Wikipedia source right here. Just speaking truth to power here. All right, so that wraps up the film side. We'll transition to talk a little bit about some recurring TV characters over the years. So we mentioned earlier, after he left SNL, he went over to In Living Color. Played various characters, but Cheap Pete being one of those main ones between 93 and 94. (laughs) From 97 to 2000, he hosted The Chris Rock Show. He won an Emmy for writing and had seven total nominations during that time. So pretty big talk show for, you know, someone who's on top of their game as a comedian. He did a great interview with Alan Iverson at the beginning of Iverson's career. It was such a well-done interview, and he covered so many really interesting topics that several years later, there was a, a documentary that came out about Iverson. And parts of that Chris Rock interview are laced throughout the full feature-length documentary. And it almost helps tell the story that is told, you know, a decade or so later. So it was a really fun interview, but it was also structured well enough. It helped a, a later project be really good. Was that show just a straight talk show or was it like a skit show too? It had skits too. So it was, okay. it was interviews yeah. and yeah. skits. Yep. That's a good question. Because we talked about how his in his SNL days, his, the skits weren't really his, mm-hmm. you know, his forte. So I was wondering if he... no. I mean, one it was nominated for a lot of awards, but I, I don't think I definitely wasn't watching it. But I also was like mm-hmm. nine, so talk shows weren't my thing at that age, you know. Right, exactly. We'll get to him. When I was a little kid, I was obsessed with the NBA, and I think we're going to talk about yes. Nike Nike commercial, yes, right? Yes, yeah. we are. This is one of HBO's first interview shows. I think it was really good, but it was probably also ahead of its time. The only other thing I'll say is the Iverson documentary also featured "Party Up" by DMX. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, keep digging. You might find a fifth before we're done. From 2005 to 09, he 
was a narrator and played Mr. Abbott in Everybody Hates Chris, kind of a semi-autobiographical experience of his childhood. Definitely something that people tie pretty pretty high on the list to him in his career. Um, he got a Golden Globe nom for Best TV Series, two Emmys, and a People's Choice Award for that. I watched a few episodes of it, and like I know earlier when we were talking trivia, and we talked about um, like Chris's dad. I, I I don't know what Chris's dad looks like, but honestly, in my mind, I I imagine Terry Crews as his dad <laughs> in this show. <laughs> I always have ever since I've seen this, even though I've seen you know I was like, oh my gosh, Terry Crews is his dad. You know, he's also in Brooklyn Nine Nine and all that stuff. Like, and he's Cheeseburger Eddie in The Longest Yard. Like, the guy's incredible. <laughs> yeah, probably the closest thing we've reviewed up to this point that's similar to this show would have been what's it called, the Chris O'Dowd show. Where it's yeah, basically yeah. based on his it's, life, it's called, Moon yeah, Boy. I yeah, think. Ass, ass Man. Yeah, Moon Boy. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this is very critically re- well received and has gotten a lot of love. It's a good show. It's entertaining. 2011 to 2012, he was himself in a few episodes of Louis. So you can see he's, he did work with Louis C.K. quite a bit. And this was obviously before mm-hmm. the old uh, the masturbating uh, problem came to fruition. He's really funny in those episodes. <laughs> Pootie Tang, which helped him out. There's an HBO special from 2011 with Seinfeld, Louis C.K., Ricky Gervais, and Chris Rock. It's basically like them as comedians talking mm-hmm. about like how just how they do their thing. Oh yeah, it's fucking hilarious. It is like, and it's it's kind of hard to watch now with like everything with going on with Louis C.K. But like, I remember watching that one night and just dying laughing. And it's a really cool insight into how that how the comics how that world is like form basically and how they get their ideas and stuff so mm-hmm. i think it's on hbo so if, if you're if you're interested go check it out check that out most recently in 2020 he was in the fourth season of fargo as Lloyd cannon which he's gotten quite a bit of critical acclaim for i loved this season and i loved him in it it was fun to finally watch him nail the heavy i loved it thought he was great in it it was definitely a change from a lot of the other mm-hmm. stuff he's done. And you could tell he's grown as an actor over the years. He wouldn't have been able to do this 20 years ago. I've still only seen season one of the FCU. So I'm not, I, I can't, <laughs> I can't comment. There you go. All right. So let's transition to some just brief appearances over the years um, on TV. And we'll start with what Rigby mentioned earlier. He played Lil Penny in the Nike commercials from 94 to 98, as in Lil Penny Hardaway. His alter ego. Iconic. Absolutely iconic. Probably my first foray into uh, Chris Rock, I would say, as a five-year-old. You hear that voice, and you were just absolutely taken back to that. And those shoes were so sick, too. Penny Hardaway always had the coolest shoes. He was the man back in the day. He was the man. 95, he made an appearance on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Appearance on Martin in 96. So some staples, like African-American shows in the mid-90s, staples, right? He got an Emmy nom for his role in Comedy Central's Politically Incorrect in 96. King of the Hill, 98. He hosted the MTV Awards in 99. I remember that MTV Awards because that was... It was on nine nine ninety nine. That was like the whole marketing uh, round. Is. Yeah, I'm sure DMX won an award. There. <laughs> yeah, he did. 2003, he's in the Bernie Mac show. As we know, he's worked with Bernie Mac quite a bit in his career. <laughs> he's hosted the Oscars twice in his career. So he did it first in 05, and where he made fun of Jude Law. So good. Was it Sean Penn that didn't like it? Who was the actor that like gave him shit for? pooping on jude law and was like jude law is actually a good actor probably sean penn somebody like that very similar so he hosted in 2005 he then hosted it again in 2016 he got an emmy nomination for his guest appearance there 2015 he's in broad city jim gaffigan show empire 
And then in 2019, he was in the Eric Andre show. All I've got to say is bird up. Bird up. If you're a fan of Eric Andre show, you'll know what I'm talking about. I'm just talking to those people right now. Mm-hmm. Bird up. So all two of you still listening at this point. Damn it. <laughs> uh, Warren and I were on the same page. And then finally, I saw an interview today, and it was from January, this past January, where he was on CBS Sunday morning. And they were talking about his projects and different things over the years. And he talked about some of his personal struggles. So the fact that he you know, struggled with adultery in his, in his relationships, the fact that he was addicted to porn at one point in time, and why he, he spends like seven hours a week in therapy and how transformative that's been for him. But the biggest piece I, I noticed in that is he talked about how at this point in his career, he wants good work. And in particular, he, he's like, comedy's been great to me over my career, but he's at this point where he wants to do more dramatic, good, award-worthy work. And you could see it in his work in Fargo. That it, Those are the types mm-hmm. of roles I think we're going to expect him to take on going forward. So I thought that was interesting um, as he's reflected on where he's at in his career. He's been saying that for a, a little while now because when he <laughs> did some interviews for Top 5, well, I mean, he did, he did some interviews for Top 5 and they were asking him about his writing and writing more movies like this. And he said that top five are the types of stories he wants to write. Yep. And then he did an interview just recently where he was talking about Adam Sandler and uncut gems and what Eddie Murphy has been able to do when other people have been able to do crossing over to more serious roles. That was something that I saw that I was, I got excited about because if he's going to be able to create or try to create more things like top five, already seen that he can do it so i'm excited to see that you know that's where his mind is at and the last little chunk we're gonna hit the last major chunk is some shorts and music videos so again i mean chris rock extremely diverse performer so he's been in a bunch of music videos he was in big daddy kane's smooth operator in 89 he's in basketball jones from space jam in 96 basketball jones just iconic oh baby well that's my introduction to chris rock (laughs) basketball jones Yes. Great music video. Looking back, it should tell you like kind of how big of a deal he is. That's a Barry White. Like that's that's a big deal that he did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hilarious. That was your introduction. My introduction was the toss salad joke in 97. Then also no sex in the champagne room in 99. Iconic. In my opinion, I think might be his most iconic piece of work that he's ever produced. I think it's, it's so good. <laughs> it's amazing. Man, the lines are there. Just because someone smudged your puma. Let it fly. <laughs> He's in Red Hot Chili Peppers, Humped a Bump, 06, a crossover with Craig Robinson, who plays a bodyguard in that music video, Madonna, 2015. And then most recently, he's in the Lil Nas X featuring Billy Ray Cyrus video for Old Town Road. So he said he's done quite a bit in that world. So the last thing, producing. So he produced a bunch of his early stand-up specials. He produced the Chris Rock Show. He produced Four Years of the Hughleys. He produced Totally Bias with W. Kamau Bell for two years, The Rundown with Robin Thede, and then he is producing the upcoming Spiral, the extension of the Saw universe. So my man's done a lot, but let's get to top performances. Long-awaited Rigby, what do we got? All right, uh, we got a list from Cinema Blend. This is from November 2020, and it includes, it's Chris Rock's best performances in movies and TV ranked, but it includes stand-up specials. Oh, shit. So, which is kind of cool. And it also includes individual so like snl for example is not like a show that's like this list ranks what his best snl character is Mm. so okay let's see if you can do it we're doing top 10 top 10 yep (sighs) top five top five is number two andre allen nice job kyle that is his second best performance according to rich knight 
Richard. Dick Knight. <laughs> Thanks, Rich. Yep. <laughs> Dick Knight. Uh, bigger and blacker. No, that is not on here. What? I don't respect this list anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Bring the pain. Bring the pain is number one. Oh, okay. Nice job, Craig. Okay. All yeah. right. New Jack City? New Jack City is not on here. Ooh. Okay. I'm definitely out on this list. CB4? CB4 is number four. Cellbox floor. Madagascar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nine. Nice job, Lauren. Lethal Weapon 4. Nope. Ooh. Fargo. Nope. I think this list came out before Fargo, so. Oh, okay. Head of State? Head of State is number eight. Wow. I'll give away the SNL character because I don't know if we're going to be able to guess that. Nat X? X? Oh, oh shit. Yes. Yeah, I was thinking that. That's number 10 on this list. So we still need seven, six, five, and three. Please tell me Rufus is in this. Rufus is number three. Awesome. There you go. Well, let's Good go Shaka, Shaka Luther King. As well, nope, that's no. not on there. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's, beautiful. that's a little small, but he's awesome. Hey, we've had smaller roles end up on this. Give me death at a funeral. Yeah, that's a good one. Nope, yeah. osmosis. Uh, nope, pootie tang, pootie tang seven. <laughs> nice what? job, Kyle. No, no, no. this list, get this list out of here. <laughs> I gotta respect it. I gotta so respect from it. New Jack City's not, but pootie tang's dad is. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all you need to know right there. <laughs> Dolomite on there. Uh, no, Dolomite's not. Okay. We mentioned one. Uh, it's his In Living Color, his most famous GP. In Living Color. Cheap Cheap yep. yep. That's number six. Number five is a comedy special. I'll give you that. But it's not Bigger and Blacker. Interesting. Is it Never Scared? Oh. Never Scared. Okay, the one who won the Grammy for. Yep. And are we missing any others? Is that all? Nope, that's it. That's it. That list, I've got issues. Yeah. yeah, but I think it gets the first, the top three probably right. I think Bring the Pain is what, you know, in my eyes, that's yeah. obviously what... Put him on the map. That's valid. Put him on the map. Top five is his best movie, and I think Dogma is probably one of his best performances. So I'm I'm fine with it. Interesting. Dogma sneaking into the top three. Good for Dogma. All right, months and meter time. What we do, we rate every actor on a scale of zero to 100 based on a variety of factors. Those factors could include longevity, project choice, pop culture impact, acting range, awards footprint, any other talents they might have, their personal life, comedic chops box office success or lack thereof or anything else that matters to us and so this time we will start with rigby so i i think of the how many episodes have we done kyle what is this this is 34 34. Mm -hmm. so i think 30 of the 33 different actors that we've covered now 34 i i think it's safe to say that chris rock is probably the most not only the most like recognizable face but probably the most recognizable name not so much for his acting but just for his cultural impact i think people just know who the guy is i mean he's a very famous it's people could spot him in a room and be like i know i know chris rock i know his type of comedy and i think it's funny he he loses points for just being a good actor because i don't really think he's that great of an actor to be honest with you but i think he found a place in hollywood that he obviously found out how to dominate and i think there's really something to be said about that um, you know, top five was a huge breath of fresh air for me. Cause I didn't know that he really had that, the acting chops like that, um, until I saw that movie. Um, and I really liked it. And so he gained points for me for there, but I think just in terms of notoriety, cultural impact, longevity, um, and just overall reliability, whether it's, he's writing it or whether it's people are asking him to do stuff, you know, it's going to be a good product when Chris Rock is behind it. And I think he's proven that. So he's going to get an 82 from me on my end. I mean, 
Chris Rock is one of the best stand-up comedians of all time, underrated voice actor. Mm-hmm. I think he's done really good work in that, that world and doesn't get as much love as he probably deserves. It's hard to forgive him for playing prominent roles in movies like Pootie Tang and lots of shitty Adam Sandler movies, and a few of them we didn't even mention, like Sandy Wexler and The Week Of and stuff like that. He takes a big hit on my end for lack of range. I th- he's He's got probably the worst range of anybody we've covered up to this point from an acting standpoint. He's gotten better, don't get me wrong, but when you stack them up to the other actors we've covered, even if those other actors don't have great pop culture impact and things like that, they've got a little bit more range in terms of the types of characters they can play. I like that he is very open about his personal life, his struggles, you know, struggling with all adultery, porn addiction, but recognize I like the way his career is transformed and that he, he knows comedy is his cash cow and it's kind of driven him to where he's at from, you know, struggle, like the serious struggle growing up to having a big old house in New Jersey, having a successful career and pretty much being able to do whatever he wants. I like, I'm really interested to see over the next five to 10 years, what Chris Rock does on the screen. Cause I think you're going to, he might get to the point where he does the type of work that he starts to get some actual, like big time award nominations for, for golden globes and Oscars, but we'll see. So on my end with all that in consideration, I'm going to give him a 71. Aubrey. So I think it's kind of hard to do this with him because He's not a great actor. I think he's good, but he's not great. But when I look at him, I'm, he's elite at one thing, which happens to be his specialty. Like he is an absolute legend in, in stand-up. He is one of the best to ever do it. And that weighs really heavily for me. There's not many people that can say I am the I'm the best of an era at a thing. And he's a good enough actor that holds it up. But what I was really impressed with by looking through his career is that he's been successful and good about every aspect you can be he's directed a good movie he's written a good movie he's acted in good movies he's produced good things he's done it in tv he's done it in stand-up he's made music he's made commercials he's done interviews like he's been able to touch all kinds of things and then his cultural impact is is almost unparalleled so like for me he's a legend to me he's a legend to the black community like he matters to me more than most people in hollywood just because of growing up with him and the impact he's had on me so he gets dinged because his acting isn't great i can only point to a couple of places where he was good him being an icon weighs over all that so i'm gonna go 85 case i have to agree with a lot of what was already said my score is going to be skewed because i'm a big fan i love almost everything he does and anytime i see a chris rock project is coming i'm excited to see it and and i can't wait i'm definitely going to check it out and for the first time in the entire time we've done this podcast, I've actually left my score blank hmm. coming into tonight. And I've, I've kind of filled it in as we've been going because I wanted to hear some other people's inputs because I, I kind of feel like a fanboy of Chris Rock <laughs> as I'm evaluating him. Some people already brought it up. I mean, he's a, a legendary comic and all of my favorite comics talk highly of him. That carries a lot of weight with me as well. Like Aubrey just mentioned, his writing and his producing and his acting and his music and da 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 everything he's done. I would imagine this this dude carries a lot of weight in the entertainment industry, and yet you never hear of him treating people poorly, and you never hear of him having a lot of a lot of problems. We've talked about some, but people at that level of fame and that level of power usually have more problems than he's had. I think he's one of the more prolific social thinkers entertainers and commentators of my time. And I've always loved 
his ability to look at social issues and provide a commentary that not only is entertaining, but it really makes sense and it hits home. And I've always appreciated that about him. I'm going to try to be a little bit fair when comparing him to some of the other actors and some of the other scores I've given. But with everything that I've said and trying to be fair, I'm going to give him a 77. All right, Warren, round us out. Yeah, so I would say out of everybody that we've had, he 100% has the most recognizable voice. Mm-hmm. That said, I actually don't think he's all that great in the voice, like acting, not in the same vein as like Keith David or like Gary Cole or anything, because like every time you hear his voice, you're like, this is 100% comedy. It better hit me with comedy. And that's what he does Yep, uh, with those voices. So like, I'll, I'll take that, you know, his, his pop culture impact is and, and for me, compared to everybody else, I think no matter at what point in my life you mentioned any one of the actors that we had, because most of them were, you know, around at some point during our like our, our days of watching films. Chris Rock is probably the one that I could find the most and say, like, this was Chris Rock this year and this year and this year and this year. And so he over my lifespan has had has been the biggest, you know, the, the most longevity and the one that I could point to the most. You know, I, everyone said, like, acting-wise, his range, it's really to be seen. Um, I think that Fargo is probably, from what I've heard from, like, you guys and some of my other buddies, you know, it's definitely a good step out of his his wheelhouse, but Saw is going to be really really interesting to see where he goes from there and then kind of the future so it's kind of crazy to say that 30 years into an actor's career (laughs) we can we can say that like the best is probably yet to come like acting wise yeah and that that's pretty cool to say the future really is kind of cool for him and i like it is you know his personal life is is interesting and you know, while he does pop up in like every shitty Adam Sandler movie, <laughs> I'm gonna watch him, and that sucks. <laughs> like I'm, I'm a part of the problem and the solution. But like, <laughs> you know, b- bottom line, I will watch almost anything that he's in. And there's a couple things that I really need to watch that he's been in. So I'm kind of playing a little bit of like what I know and like what's to come plus like things that I know that I need to watch and I will watch over the next week. So I'm going to end up giving him a 72. What do we got in terms of an average Warren? So that puts Chris rock at a 77.4, which is 11th, which puts him in between Ken Watanabe and Rami Malek. That seems fair. (laughs) Yeah, I mean he's got Fair. he's got it's Chastain, Rene Russo, Watanabe, Chris Rock, Rami Malek, Angelica Houston, Keith David. That's good company. All right, so what does he got coming? I know we talked a little bit about Spiral, but what else? Yeah, Spiral. He's got another uh, movie coming out called I Am Maurice, which doesn't really have much announced, but it's got Leslie Jones in it, and then an untitled David O. Russell movie. Which might be the most stacked movie of all time. Listen to this cast. Anya Taylor-Joy, Margot Robbie, Christian Bale, Zoe Saldana, Robert De Niro, Rami Malek, Timothy Oliphant, Michael Shannon, John David Washington, Mike Myers, Chris Rock. Holy shit. Yeah. Dude, and I heard the other day that the production team is stellar too. Like a bunch of Oscar winners that he brought in. Cinematography, editing. 
All right, so we got five actors we're throwing onto the wheel for episode 35. Those five are James McAvoy, Bonnie Hunt, Lake Bell, Timothy Oliphant, and Alfred Woodard. What do we love? What do we hate? That's a solid little list. That's a very solid list. Yeah, Oliphant would be awesome. Alfred Woodard would be fun. Oliphant would be fun. Anybody but Lake Bell. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) Damn. I like Lake Bell, but I feel like she needs a few more years before we cover to get into some of her stuff. James McAvoy would be fantastic. He's a... He's got some great stuff he's been in, so yeah, that'd be sure. a fun one. Oliphant would be great because he what married Fergie and all that stuff. <laughs> the, the girl no, next that's, door. That's that's Josh Namel. <laughs> They're the two <laughs> yes. guys who look yeah. the exact same. <laughs> <laughs> Alfred Woodard's been in more stuff than I think mm-hmm. we realize. I mean, she's yeah. been in. Yeah. she's been around for a long time. Yeah. so she'd be cool too. Yeah, which is why like she was. It's really anybody but Lake Bell. Yeah, I need to get around to finally watching Clemency too, and I haven't seen it yet. Same. Lake Bell, if you want to. Come on, come on. <laughs> Bonnie Hunt would be cool just for like old school stuff, like watch Jumanji and shit like that. Yeah. Like we go back a little bit on that one. But hey, the wheel decides, my friend. We don't. Well, Aubrey, it's been fantastic, man. I know this was a long one, but when you're dealing with someone like Chris Rock, that's a big career to cover. I appreciate you being here, man. Any plugs that you want to give to the to our listening audience about stuff you got going on? Words of wisdom? I don't know about any wisdom. Uh, my students could probably tell you that, but <laughs> <laughs> like my writing, I write. I have my own blog with me and my wife. We run a blog. We do movies, reviews, and all kinds of stuff about TV and lists and all kinds of things. It's the postcreditscene.com, and I also write about movies at moviebabble.com. That's pretty much it. I just write and watch movies and, and teach. And listen to Munson's episodes. That's true. And we appreciate you. It's such great insight, dude. I, I enjoyed having you on the night with us. I appreciate it. This was a blast, man. I had a lot of fun with you guys. Yeah, you're great, man. That was awesome. Yeah, and anytime we're down to Munson, a, a guest plays a huge role in helping us pick up the slack, and you did a great job. So I appreciate you, man. Yeah, man. And thanks for being a fan of the podcast and being a great guest. Appreciate it, guys. Well, speaking of great guests, Laura Benneke's coming back for our next episode. Our, our resident former actress, stunt woman, SAG member, she joined us for the Gary Cole episode, and she'll be jumping back in for episode 35, which lands on May 6th. We're excited to have Laura back in the, the guest chair. Hard to follow up, Aubrey, but I think she'll do her best. But you can always catch us on Twitter, Munson's at Movies. You can find us on Instagram, Munson's at the Movies. You can email us, Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from the Munson's? Hey, I did you a favor, okay? You called me. Now, if you ever talk down to me again, I will beat your ass so bad you'll be the only guy in heaven with a wheelchair. You better act right so you get smacked right, bitch. Munson's out. All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we?